2: Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm Campbell A. Campbell.
1: And I'm Ella Kemp.
2: On the show this week, we're seeing Red. Up first, we have the new Pixar film, Turning Red, and then the latest from director Sean Baker, Red Rocket. And finally in Film Club, we're looking back at The Emperor's New Groove, all coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back listeners, welcome back Ella and Campbell so good to see you both. Campbell what's new? So I've been reading a lot of your writing on com recently, you interviewed Matt Reeves about a little film yeah. called The Batman.
0: Yeah, um, that was really exciting. I actually, that was a pre-release one, so I was kind of swinging blind there, but um, it was a really lovely chat. Um, it was nice to kind of just like dig down into some of the comic book influences, Um the Reeves emphasizes like the seventies stuff, uh the seventies Detective Noir stuff just as much as mm-hmm. anything else. But yeah, that was really exciting. Because I, I ended up liking the Batman a lot and I kind of talked myself into liking it even more that, <laughs> after seeing it, if that makes <laughs> sense. Um but you can definitely hit, feel the things he's going for. And one thing I wish I'd talked to him about was maybe the animated series' influence on the film because that oh. definitely feels
2: very present um to a Ev- strange everything. extent. Everything I hear about this film is making me more excited to see it. Um, after talking so so much last week about being front row in the local cinema when it opens, uh, my partner has had a positive <laughs> COVID oh, test, no. so we've no. been at home with our three-year-old home from nursery, and now I've got a positive test, <gasps> so I'm not I'm not going to uh, be seeing that film. <laughs> but oh, this is no. this is this is you know this is the reality we're living with. What else do you have going on, Camberley? Eh? Is it all films at the moment, or anything else? Um it's
0: that and a lot of um Elden Ring.
2: <laughs> so let's we need to unpack what Elden Ring
0: is. Yeah, please this is I a don't film know. Audience.
1: This is not what, <laughs> like you know you know often in these kind of conversations you go like, oh imagine the person you're talking to who has no idea what you're talking about. That person is me. Please tell me.
0: <laughs> um so Elden Ring is a video game uh directed by a guy called Hidetaka Miyazaki it's like the longest latest in like a line of uh what's now become called souls-like games based on the ones they made before called Dark Souls where it's like then they're, they're known even though it's not necessarily true they're known for being really punishingly difficult uh you fight these big like grotesquely designed bosses that kill you in one hit <laughs> normally um and it's all based around like discovering little bits about this world where everyone's kind of a creep um mm. You find out information in like small increments. It like it lets you kind of project yourself onto the character a lot more. I think it's really cool. Lots oh, of I, really amazing art direction.
2: I absolutely love it, and it's so open. And the, the, there's a a sort of take going around on social media saying you need to start a diary when you play it because it doesn't hold your hand, doesn't uh, give you much direction in which way you should be going. Um, but it is fun. Also, having played some of their previous games, where you'll you'll face up against a boss who is just so tricky that. It tests the patience of even the most chill person. In this one, you can just like run away and go and explore the map, which is huge and full yeah. of beasties. That's making me shout "nope" very loudly.
0: <laughs> There's so much just like insane stuff hidden away. Have you seen one of the like walking mausoleums yet? Like,
2: I've not seen that. I did see what's what someone was calling a hand mine. I don't know if you oh, saw oh. that. Like, yeah, that's that's something wrong there. Um, but anyway, Ella, that that doesn't really seem like your vibe. Uh, that, that video game I'm, but what's, what's, I'm just happy going you're going happy What's in your world
1: <laughs> I mean My entire world is uh, I have a new cat Which is nice His name is Bobby He's extremely small um, Bobby. He cries Most of the time when he's on his own uh, I tried to leave him out of the room For this podcast And he was not having it So you well, know
2: Maybe we'll get a cameo later today. He might why, tune why in that- why that name? Any any real reason? I'm
1: not really sure. Um I mean a cat we had before was called Alfie, um, which somehow y- you know how your cat's name always changes just because of the nature of being a silly human being. Um Alfie became Balfie became Bob, became Bobby. So I don't know if we were like, you know, trying to keep that going. I'm not really sure to be honest. But um hmm. no, we've always been determined to have uh very human names. For our cats. So here we are now with
2: okay, well. a,
1: a young cat which has the name of an old man.
2: Hmm. Well, welcome Bobby as well. But we have two great new releases to talk about. Lots to get through this week so we should kick things off. We're going to start with the new Pixar movie, Turning Red. Here's a bit of synopsis. Turning Red introduces Mei Lee. A confident, dorky 13-year-old torn between staying her mother's dutiful daughter and the chaos of adolescence. Her protective, if not slightly overbearing mother, Ming, is never far from her daughter, an unfortunate reality for the teenager. And as if changes to her interests, relationships and body weren't enough, whenever she gets too excited or aggravated, she transforms into a giant red panda. So, Camberley, this is the debut feature from Domi Shi, who won an Oscar a few years ago for the short film Bao, in which um, an overbearing mother um, with her very cute dumpling child um, ends with one of the best gasps I've ever heard in a cinema where she eats the child. Um, (laughs) Should we be excited about Turning Red? What sort of vibe is it? Yeah, 100% uh, should be excited about it.
0: Um, This is coming for, got to kind of preface this with um, that I've not really been excited about Pixar for years now um a lot of their output has felt very samey to me like whenever a pete doctor comes out it's just like oh what about this like high concept thing but it's actually a bureaucracy mm-hmm. um or like just kind of i don't know uh openly emotionally manipulative features in between they're like kind of very going they're very much going for the this is a pixar film kind of thing so here's the bit where you cry about someone's parents um but i think Turning Red is very defiant of a lot of those clichés especially in the fact that its central premise feels like a talking point before the film even came out like something like Soul had someone turning into a creature and then like that invited discussions about um why are there no um people of color like up front in Pixar films without something like this happening to them so when you see it happening again kind of in the trailers you kind of just go hmm like are they really going for this again but having seen Bao and really liked what she was going for in that um i felt confident that it would be good and um i was proven right that it's it's super funny um and a, not just a uh i'd say not just a really good um and really detailed study of like the textures of a family home but also just of 2002 in general <laughs> uh everything from like tamagotchis to flip phones are kind of just like woven into the plot in a way that doesn't feel like it's not like early season Mad Men when it's just like uh, you have people like nudging, almost nudging you and being like, "Ah, oh, well, like we're in a doctor's office, but we're smoking cigarettes because it's the '60s." <laughs> like, uh, it's nothing as sort of uh, heavy-handed as that, but it does have like all of those. It, it very much captures the experience of being a um, young teenager in that sort of time frame, which makes it feel all the. It just makes it feel all the more mm-hmm. personal, uh, I think. Right down to the obsession with like an NSYNC-like
2: boy band.
1: (laughs) That was personal to me.
2: Go on then, Ella. (laughs) Do do you have have previous form with loving boy boy bands then? Was this very relatable for you?
1: Look, I just want to say for anyone listening to this podcast, uh, the running sheet that we have to prepare for this episode, um, I was credited as a co-writer on this film. Um, it's very much in line with all of my interests. Uh I like coming like of anime. Age. Like anime. You know me. I am <laughs> the expert on this call. Um no, I I love coming-of-age films. I love boy bands, I love teenage girls, all of these things. So um however, um <laughs> I wasn't actually initially when the first trailers come out, I wasn't that excited for this a few months ago. Like, I think for similar reasons to you, Cam. I think I was just like We've seen so many Pixar transformations. I'm like, this This seems a bit random. It seems a bit generic. It seems, I don't know, I'm a bit tired of it. Um, but I was completely wrong. Um, and yeah, I found it so charming. And one thing that I really loved um, is that I think, I mean, there's a lot to love in it. But, but the first thing is that I think for the, one of the first times I can remember, it feels like the transformation from, you know, tiny human being into whichever creature, whatever object you want it to be um (laughs) for me it's the first time it really made sense in terms of uh you know may being a, 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 a teenage girl and these changes are gonna happen to her body and she's not gonna know what like what they are why she suddenly looks like this why that's growing there why she feels this way and i was like oh yeah it does happen like that and like it is really random and it is you would be completely terrified and but then, you know, when when she starts to learn to control it a little bit, um, like, again, true, you can sometimes. I just loved how in tune it was with, um, like, knowing and respecting and caring for the human body, particularly as a teenage girl, without being overly, like, paint-by-numbers to audiences in terms of, like, here's how periods work. Because I think that is... Okay. <laughs> like that could have happened, and I think um, <laughs> in in some responses to the film I've seen, I feel like some people who are uncomfortable with that like thought that happened, and we're kind of talking about it like, oh, I don't relate to this, and I'm like, if you've ever met uh... a woman or a teenage girl, th- mm, you know, if you haven't, fine, but if that's the case, please, I don't, I don't want to hear this. Um, yeah, I just think in terms of, I don't want to completely dive into this, but I just think, um. I think the film is very good at caring for its subject and showing audiences why you should care about this character and people in your life who might be similar um you know without staying too focused on just like i don't think it's a super subjective film Um. in that sense i think it does kind of invite you in um to kind of you know empathize with everyone involved
2: it's it um, is interesting. In, in some ways, it is super subjective in the sense that Domi she would have been uh, growing would have been a teenager in two thousand and two. It's set in Toronto, which is the city she grew up in, um, breaking a lot of you know, being very personal in in many of these ways. But the, the the metaphor of the red panda is also quite a flexible one that can be mapped onto all sorts of adolescent things about the burgeoning interests and obsessions and horniness that comes with the hormone yeah. imbalance of the time. I mean
1: there's 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 a line towards the end of the film which which i think really hit the for me which i think leans into more familiar pixar things that i think you have to do to some extent to tie things up a bit like when when may saying talking about like embracing the quote unquote weird messy parts of yourself that kind of line always makes me cringe a bit because i think we've reached the point with female characters in cinema in particular where you've swung so far the other way from like strong female characters that that it's all about like being weird and messy and complicated. But what that does say to me is that it does have this kind of mainstream appeal that it is like tapping into things that are, you know, quite common by this point in Mm. cinema, I think.
0: I think it's very, it's kind of like speak in that moment, it's speaking very directly to its audience in that um, there will probably be people watching. It's just like, like who have that sort of, oh, like I'm weird. I'm like not normal thing when, uh this film so much stresses like the normalcy of may and who she is like all of this is very regular like the film approaches all of this coming of age stuff so directly like it's not really coy about any of the period stuff like it's like the first thing her mother says it's like so when she funny. turns into the giant red panda and i love that it um i love that it approaches it so directly mm. i was like i think i started complaining when soul came out and i was just like this is kind of like a in the first th- few minutes i was like this is so- something like getting closer to the sort of only yesterday i want always wanted from pixar and this kind of genuine feels like another step in that direction just through that um just through that directness of the reality of growing up as a teenage girl and um and how seriously it takes may's problems like even like the um like it's just like the stakes the stakes of the film don't get too much higher than the boy I want to go and see this boy band. The stakes and, are uh... so
1: high, Cam. Have you ever tried to go and see a boy <laughs> band? I, t- I don't think you can What am I talking about? It.
0: They're higher than ever. <laughs> um But also, yeah, I think a lot of um she's personal experience just feels woven into the texture of the film. I spoke in my review about how it kind of laces all of these d- just little anime things throughout uh the thing and she spoke i think she spoke about it in an interview with a friend of mine toussaint about like the sort of 90 late 80s and 90s shows that influenced uh turning red like um there's a little bit of inuyasha um there's absolutely a bit of sailor moon and there's like a uh, magical girl moment uh, at some point in the film that i'm blanking on at the moment right now there's a uh for the gibletech heads in the house there's a um moment where she directly quotes Mamoru Hosoda like the girl leaps in the exact pose of the Studio Chizu logo so there's all of these just like little references like tied throughout that texture and I just love that's how she kind of evokes her personal experience rather than making it like plainly autobiographical I think it's just kind of present in a way that feels Mm. I don't know very natural to me um and then you also just get the cool side effects like there's actual like impact frames so like that's when um the color sort of like washes out of the frame and it goes there's all these like kind of sketchy lines instead of um the full de- detail and it sort of blows that out for just a split second um for impact that's the <laughs> in the name and it does things like that and like speed lines when she's like moving through the air and that like kind of big finale bit um and it's just all of these little things that i love and i'm just like oh this is speaking to me directly like i mean uh, the as, eyes like, uh, as well yes yeah and the big sparkly eyes that was it, there's so, so many exciting
1: i mean i will say i'm not an expert on anime whatsoever but like you know that is something that i recognize as being very different from pixar and also it just fits so well in terms of like the way these teenage girls feel it's ma- <laughs> it's mainly used around their boy band their boy band which they own um but also when they get excited about anything it's and it's just so lovely because i feel like that had been something that was lacking in, in Pixar for a few years. Everything just, you know, they try and make everything emotional and it, and it comes through more in the script. But I I did feel like watching a lot of these characters, they all look the same in a way. It's like they don't. They're all designed differently and they're all different ages and they come from different places and, you know, they're different, they're different people. But I don't know, just all of the emotion was starting to feel very, very similar, whereas here was the first time where I was like, oh my God, like this really matters. And you can kind of, I don't know, it feels a bit more visceral the way they're... Like the way their emotions work,
0: I think you can kind of trace it to uh, a few kind of factors. Like I think that a lot of Pixar films like gravitate towards this sort of like pseudo realism thing. Like a lot of like the later works are about this visual fidelity. Uh, so like moving away from that is already just like a huge like thing. I think for this film, and then there's also like this the simple fact that. um I feel like what, this is maybe the, the what second woman to direct a no, Pixar sorry, movie? Uh, like... this
1: is the first woman. So, <laughs> Domi was, oh, uh, yeah, was the brave. first woman to direct a short film, and now she's the first woman to direct a feature, which you know is fantastic for her. But I'm like, really,
0: really? Was brave? Th- was brave the first, or was that one where the director jumped ship?
1: Co-direct. Uh, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure, but I know that this is the first film where it's just like you know a woman has a soul credit, which uh, is not, just yeah, so not
0: a small thing. <laughs> Yeah. Um and then also you have that like minority perspective as well like I think that Pixar have kind of been consciously approaching with things like Coco and Soul I guess but again it just feels like in Soul you have like the black characters shuffled off to the side and you can feel like it feels sort of hermatically sealed and it's, you can tell like this is Kent Powers as part of the film uh, where he's going through like the barbershops and things like that but whereas like here it's just like throughout and it's very like heartfelt and authentic in a way that i think um a lot of Pixar films can tend to be false like you said it just like feels like they um sort of lead you down to a very specific emotion it's just like this is a bit where you are supposed to feel like this i think this lets you engage with it like from
2: like wherever you can connect to it a great deal of energy and excitement here very appropriately for a film that has so much energy <laughs> <laughs> bursting out of it let's put some scores on turning red Campbell, I'll come to you first with a three scores out of five. In anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect.
0: Uh, I'm going to stick with uh, what is on record. Uh, so uh, I had anticipation f- down for three because, uh, as I said before, like, Pixar wasn't really doing it for me that much later. I think, like, um, lately, I think that they'd sort of run out of creative steam for, I guess, the reasons that we'd mentioned already. Uh, but I like Bao a lot, and I had faith in She uh five i put for enjoyment because it's just i wish we had touched on it a little bit more but it's so funny it's just it's so so funny from the moment it skips past um may's kind of like very in your face precociousness and gets to the real like kind of awkward stuff it handles it so well there's amazing just amazing gags throughout and it it's just it, it's the best looking pixel film i think that has been for a really long time just because it embraces a very different kind of like deliberately cartoony aesthetic Four, I kind of dialed it back down a bit because I was just I think I was caught up in the caught up in it a lot and I think thinking about it there's that sort of heavy handedness towards the end, which um I think when the rest of the film had been very natural about how it's messaging and how it unpacks its multifaceted panda metaphor. Pandemonium.
2: Ella, what are your scores? <laughs>
1: You've been waiting for that. Um I am gonna go with the three in anticipation, which I think is my score for every Pixar film you know not not optimistic but vaguely hopeful um and then i will go for four enjoyment and four in retrospect just because yeah it's really really solid very funny very good looking very much in line with all my interests a good (laughs) time
2: (laughs) wonderful listeners turning red is going straight to disney plus this weekend, which is a shame, although means you can watch it over and over again. Get those references Cambolay was referring to. Come back, let's know what you make of it at the usual channels at LWB Lies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at TCO London dot com via email. Up next, we've got Red Rocket. Finding himself down and out in Los Angeles, ex-porn star Mikey Saber decides to return to his hometown of Texas City, Texas, where his estranged wife and mother-in-law are living. Just as this dysfunctional family seems to be making things work, Mikey meets a young woman named Strawberry, working the cash register at a local donut shop, and falls right back into his old habits. Ella, I'll come to you first for the Red Rocket. Um, so this is the new one from Sean Baker. Listeners, you may have seen The Florida Project, Tangerine, his previous two films, what is his sort of filmmaking, Ella? How do you describe it?
1: I would say that Sean Baker is arguably the best American, the best independent American filmmaker um, at, oh, hang okay. on, hang on, <laughs> hang on, you both raised your eyebrows, <laughs> um, at chronicling stories of like life on the fringes, like kind of close fringes to society. It's not too far removed from society, but people who kind of like, you know, have been in, have been around and are kind of retreating slightly. And, you know, now either need to find a way to, to claw back to some semblance of their lives that they want or to, you know, to do something else. He's he he's looking at people who who have kind of struggled under the various politicians who have, you know, sorry, but things up repeatedly in America and he's and he's like figuring out how they get through that um and also on a technical level um I think he's one of the best people at working with non-professional actors again in the US I mean um as he always just you know finds this like untapped untapped talent um and they're just incredible in you know in every one of his films I think whether they are whether they do become the the main um characters and actors in the film or like secondary characters that you then end up being like, who was that? They were incredible, um, and I think yeah, Red Rocket very much tap, like ties into all of that. Um, I I I liked it a lot more than Sean Baker's other films. I I liked his other films like Tangerine and um, Florida Project, but yeah, this one for me just like w- yeah, it it just worked so much what better. Is that? What, um, what was the
2: what was the secret sauce this time?
1: I'm I'm not sure to be honest. I think. I mean, I think maybe part part of it is like the main actor. So he's played by, um, so Mikey Sabre is played by Simon Rex, who, oh, he's he's such a funny man. And I mean, Mikey Sabre as a character is funny, but Simon Rex on his own is very funny. I mean, he, uh, so like he's <laughs> he's been in the film industry for about 25 years. And I know this because he will tell everyone this at every possible chance all of the time, which I find so funny. Um, he, he used to work as a VJ on MTV for like quite a while and like cameoed in scary movie and stuff like that. And he actually cameoed in, um, another film from the noughties, which I believe is called Buried, if, 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 if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the only reason I know this is because Sean Baker, um, saw Simon Rex in this film, um, and wrote about it on Letterboxd and was like, oh, Simon Rex, that guy is so good um, like he should be in more stuff and I think oh, I really hope I'm not fudging all the dates on this I think it was around 2012 um, and so he wrote this on Metabox and then like he's the one who called him up and decided to cast him in this movie and then Simon Rex talks about this all the time and he's like you know Sean Baker took a chance on me when nobody would call me back and like, which is true and it's just it's just mad to me how you know Simon Rex hadn't been in much and it wasn't recent and just how Sean Baker had this like you know lays a focus on this man who nobody thought about for ages and he has so much to do in this film like he talks so much he has to balance so many different tones he's very funny but he's very uncomfortable he's very strange and he looks a certain way and I mean he runs through the street naked with like a fake penis you know there's all of these things going on um and somehow Sean Baker knew that that he could pull it off because I think he really does put off I think it's an incredible performance. Um, so yeah, I I, th- I think it's probably Simon Rex for me. It's
2: absolutely his show, isn't it? I know there are some really yeah. great supporting roles, but he is really not, not only does he you know, carry every scene, he also dominates every scene. He has such a great look to him, also has these very piercing eyes, very beautiful eyes, and the the character itself of Mikey Saber is this strangely charming. Man, who you also know is an absolute dirtbag, <laughs> at the same time.
1: He's so exhausting. He's so so so. I I spoke to Simon Rex a few months ago, um, about this film, and and I said to him that it it made me think of uh, a Phoebe Bridges lyric. Uh, she has a song called Punisher, um, and she's described she described a Punisher as someone who just doesn't know when to stop talking, um, who you know will be in the conversation like for, for so long and will just not take the hint. Um, and he liked that, but he also said that he has been calling this character an energy vampire, mm. um, which I think is great because like, yeah, you don't, you're just completely depleted after you spent a few minutes with him. Um, which is funny for audiences, but must be, you know,
2: awful for anyone in the film. Absolutely. Cambly, what did you make of this? Um, I think I have called
0: on, um, Sean Baker's stuff a little bit, um, just with some distance, um. So I think I like I engaged with Red Rocket a bit more like in my mind, this kind of sits higher than how I feel about um, Tangerine and the Florida Project. But Ella's uh, like so spot on about his um, interest in like pe- like these um, niche groups like proximity to American wealth. Um, Like in how in the Florida Project, like Disneyland looms basically over the shoulder of every character at all times. You have like kind of oil refineries, no, something else refineries, um, uh, (laughs) running out in the sea, but um, yeah, like you have these like giant refinery towers and stuff looming over the background, like, and, and literally, no matter where you go in the film um and there's this kind of like presence of um somebody's wealth in the background it's just no it just doesn't belong to any of the characters like in the frame and you have then you have um mikey come along who's this like kind of complete charlatan who is very like thanks to simon rex's performance is just very convincing at all times like you just kind of like you start the film thinking i'm just like this guy's like just full of like it's like at all times you just know he is like just making it up the whole time and then you kind of start getting swayed into like wanting that success for him as well because he talk he talks you into it (laughs) um while he's at the same time while he's doing all of these like pretty uh objectively terrible things to everyone in his orbit because he just sort of like energy vampire is a great way to put it because he just takes everything that's good about the people in his orbit and then uses it for his own gain and then at the same time because rex's performance is so convincing you're just like yeah, right, you go, um, Mikey. <laughs> so, keep hustling, like, and then you just kind of had this horrible feeling in your gut and it's like, oh, I shouldn't be rooting for this. And then there's a point in the film where you're like, I really shouldn't be rooting for this. But they put um, it off and, somehow, uh, I think. And then you worry for that poor girl, Strawberry.
1: Yeah. She's such an interesting character, I think. And I think she's interesting in terms of
0: she was an unknown, right? Um... She,
1: yeah, was well, she? She wasn't like a professional feature film actor, but she's got <laughs> she's got her own fan base and her own thing, like on TikTok and on Instagram and all of that. Um, so fun fact on social media, her handle is um the Strawberry Butcher, and it's based on that that they called her strawberry in the film. Sean Baker was like, oh, this sounds oh. cool. Um, and yeah, so she, I think, yeah, she hadn't acted. Um, like in this kind of film before but I I thought her performance was amazing as well like she yeah she plays this uh, like 17 year old girl who works at this crappy like roadside donut shop called Donut Hole and like Mikey starts flirting with her and like wants to start grooming her but what I found quite interesting is I think she does have her own personality as well and like she's not just completely, like, subservient f- throughout. And she she says to him, like, when, when she finds out that, that he used to be a porn star because he, like, tries to hide that at first from her, He, I think he expects her to freak out and be like, oh, this poor little girl is going to see, like, what I used to do in my life. And she doesn't really care. She's just like, okay, like, as long as you're not hurting anyone. I think she literally says, you do you or something. And I just really liked that because I think so often in stories, it's still worrying and bad and you know bad again for all the obvious reasons but what I liked is that Strawberry is her own person and you know can have her own opinions about it even if her opinions are also wrong in this instance in terms of like you know how much time she should be spending with this man um I liked that it was just very murky because she gets to have a voice as well which isn't always the case I think in stories where you have an older man grooming a young woman like this you never really hear what the young woman thinks about it. Um, And I just, I just found that it made this film like just even more complex and just very, very interesting because I honestly didn't know like what either of them was going to say next. Like, you know, who was going to make a terrible mistake, whose fault it was going to be. Well, just who, who was going to make the next move, Mm. Um, which I just found like very, a a very dangerous thing to play with, which I thought was always like somehow executed really, really well.
2: So, something that's interesting about this is that it's another entry in this Trump-era dirtbag canon that the Safety brothers excel in as well with Uncut Gems, saying it properly, um, Uncut Gems and Good Time as well. Um, how does this fit into that and how does it, does it do anything differently? Say somebody's like, oh, I've seen that Not film a million subtly. times before, do I need to go and watch another film about an awful person being charming but awful?
0: Yeah. I think it fits into that canon and it, it, it's kind of... It kind of crowbars itself in there because I mean, there's a moment in the film where he quite, while he's on his way to try and hustle his way into a job, he cycles right underneath the Make Make America Great Again billboard, and then there's like moments in the film where his sort of scheming is um, directly contrasted with like a Trump speech on television. So I he's rolling
1: joints with like papers that have the, US, the, flag the
0: flag U.S. flag, it. flag on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like um, and then you kind of it's it's not subtle about drawing that line between his sort of um, disturbingly like kind of alluring charm to that of Trump, which I think makes the film feel a little bit like set in a certain point, set at a certain point in time, which I guess like is intentional because it is during the sort of 2016 like run up rather than like in the present moment. Um, So it's sort of um, (laughs) it's sort of like foregrounds that much but um i think that those moments are where it kind of took me out mm-hmm. of it a little bit i think you can kind of draw those connections like quite naturally anyway um i don't think that it needed that extra push uh which is i think that what maybe the one bit where the seams of the film like really showed for me is in those moments connecting um mikey so directly with trump because it's like if it's speaking at a like kind of broader portrait of um this sort of area of America, I don't know that, um, like, I don't know. It just doesn't leave enough room for the kind of regime change. But I guess, like, when you're looking at it in continuity with those other films, that kind of comes through. Like, I guess the Florida Project is under, like, a different... Pre- it's, like, it's set under a different presidency. So I guess in... When you read those films together, it's like Baker is, like, addressing that things do not change for these groups of people, no matter the changes at the top. Um, I think it's just maybe the... Billboard thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it made me laugh, but I think it's just like uh, it felt very uncomplicated mm-hmm. uh, when the rest of the film is a lot mm-hmm. more so.
2: Ella, what scores would you give Red Rocket?
1: Um, I think my scores for Red Rocket will probably be the same to Turning Red. No, do you know what? No, they will be the same as Campbell's scores for Turning Red. Um, I would give this one a three because, yeah. Sean Baker I was like "Mm, I've liked his films but again I think because I've seen a couple that I liked but didn't love I was like "Mm, maybe it'll go this way again but yeah so that's a three um I'd go a five for enjoyment because I think I was just so surprised by Mikey's performance um he's so entertaining he's so strange one thing I didn't get to touch on as well is I think the film's aesthetics Um, I found so funny there are so many crash zooms in this film and they always work for some reason oh and sorry the one from
0: his butt is so funny (laughs) yeah
1: it's mad but then also one thing we didn't mention um the needle drop like again another great NSYNC moment um it's so funny it's it's yeah incredible so five uh enjoyment and then four in retrospect because yeah I think a lot of the things we've been talking about like The very on the nose like political parallels the very murky lines in their relationship which i think you know they deal with properly but it's still a bit mm. um so yeah four in retrospect
2: Campbelling.
0: i was actually just going to say quickly that um ella i guess you connected this one because you did say before about turning red that you love boy bands and teenage girls i'm living (laughs) 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 it's a big week for ella camp (laughs) um uh yeah i think um i think i'm sitting at a three for anticipation because i think again with some distance from sean baker's stuff i it sort of went down in my memory like i couldn't decide whether i thought like the florida project was sort of like voyeuristic in its study of uh poor people in america like working class people um so like I think it just that, that sort of um faded impression of it sort of made me think, hmm, I don't know how I'm gonna be with this one going in. I think four for enjoyment just because it's so strangely funny and it's just this absolute like one of those like kind of car crashes you can't look away from sort of movies. Literally. Um Yeah. That was <laughs> um, <laughs> uh <laughs> well say say no more on the subject. But um yeah, I think I, I found it very compelling um to my uh like it's, it's like to my surprise, and also just like it's very, th- it's a very thorny picture in a way that like I think um, there aren't quite enough of. Um, like it, it's not so easily untangled. Um, and then I think for in retrospect, it's holding up in my mind so far. Maybe ask me in two years. Maybe you're cooled <laughs> on
2: it as you have in the past with the, with the previous ones. There you have it, listeners. Two great films out this weekend at home and at the cinema let us know what you make of them at the usual channels up next we go from two triumphs in our humble opinions to maybe a slight misstep in the disney canon the emperor's new groove The Emperor's New Groove, Emperor Cusco, thought he had it all, a devoted populace to rule over, a wardrobe of glamorous garb, and his unwavering groove. But when a devious mix-up turns Cusco into a llama, the once mighty ruler must form an unlikely alliance when a peasant offers to help him regain his throne from the power-hungry advisor who stole it from him. So I, I know I was I was riling up, riling up the discourse there by saying it was a misstep. This is one of those films that was on the downward slide for Disney where they, had after a run of amazing hits in the late 80s, early 90s, the Renaissance they seemed to lose their way in the late 90s into the 2000s ending with the shuttering of the hand-drawn division at Disney losing ground to Pixar for example at the time but of course with Disney it's absolutely a micro-generational thing so I was too old for this film when it came out Campbell A. Ella, you are younger than me um, did you, Campbell Did you? Hmm. was this a home video one for you? Did you see this at the time or a first watch now uh, much later? i i saw it mm. at the
0: time i remember seeing the trailers and i like i saw the funny dancing llama and my parents uh got me the video um <laughs> i don't remember seeing it in the cinema i can remember my cinema experiences from that age because one of them was spider-man and we had to leave um <laughs> that's a story for another time but um yeah uh i think i'd revisited emperor's new groove maybe like once since uh that age what was i like five um uh so it was still pretty fresh for me coming back to it, and I remembering it. I remember it being a sort of buddy movie, like gag comedy. But I was just looking at it, and I was just like, I can't believe um, Disney made a Looney Tunes mm-hmm. short. <laughs> and and just yeah, looking at um, the behind the scenes stuff that you were hinting at, it is just. Um, I mean, it was like like. Obviously, it was expressly, like, pitched as, like, a Chuck Jones thing. And I love the bits in the film where that starts becoming obvious. Like, the gag with the following um, Kuzco and Patcher on the map with the red line. And then you see um, Kronk and Isma, and they're following the red line, and it's just on the ground in the world. <laughs> and it's just really silly, like, stuff like that, which I really loved. And it sets it apart for a lot of Disney things.
2: Uh, mm. Too much, apparently. <laughs> well, no, no. The actual history is really fascinating, because the, the, the roots of this project... Uh, go all the way back to the early nineties off the back of the lion King, where the co-director Roger Allers pitched another big fantasy musical epic in a similar vein to the lion King, but looking at a sort of uh, South central American culture Um but And they got as far as having like a quarter of it animated. They had several songs by Sting written. They had a whole cast who'd, who'd recorded their parts and it was testing badly. And then there was that really fascinating schism at Disney in the late 90s where they just didn't really know what they wanted to do anymore. They had a run of those sort of middling hits or misses from Hercules, Tarzan onwards. And they flinched and said, we don't want to do another big epic could cut it right back, make it something more knockabout and, and and jolly and funny. And Al has left and they cut all nearly all the sting songs. <laughs> and and we one. Here is, is a really fun um you know, very similar to Turning Red in a way where it's all in the character animation and the energy of the performances. Mm. But really fascinating just as a time capsule of Disney would not make a film like this now because we're in this age of, some would say, virtue signalling how much they respect the culture and the perspective that <laughs> they set their films in, whereas this is, like, the whitest guys you know, David Spade <laughs>
0: and John Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and then there's Arthur Kitt, too, who just, like, puts in, like, one of the just inc- oh, most made. incredible vocal it's performances. So Pull the lever, cronk. Even Kronk
1: <laughs> is unreal. He's so... Patrick
2: Warburton is good, isn't I he? Just... The Tick himself.
1: He's so... Like, his voice is so dumb, but it's so funny. I just, I don't know how he does it. And yes, this film is like turning red. I only realised this when I knew we were talking about this. This film is like Red Rocket because Cusco is like Mikey Sabre. He is the worst energy vampire ever. He does not care what anyone thinks or does he's just he's got to build his pool you know he's he's he is the emperor he you know mikey saber has been in the business for 25 years cusco is the emperor you know those are facts you cannot argue with how powerful these characters are um he's so funny and yeah exhausting like this film is an an hour and 18 minutes um mm. and in a good way it feels to me so much longer um well and also like you know, it's an hour and twelve minutes, um, before you have lots of lovely, colourful credits afterwards. But yeah, it's 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 so entertaining, it's so energetic. Um Yeah, it's a great time. So,
2: Ellie Ellie, you said um that you rewatched a big chunk of Disney movies. Was it during the first lockdown? I did. And yeah. Where did this rank for you?
1: So this rewatch was ahead of um Raya and The Last Dragon. So this was at the time when there were um fifty seven films within the Walt Disney Animation Studios canon. Um <laughs> and when I agreed to do this for feature, I thought, Oh yeah, I've basically seen all of them. I'll have to rewatch like ten. Um mm-hmm. no, I don't remember any of them, so I rewatched honestly about forty.
0: Uh Were you doing direct to video as well?
1: Uh, No, 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 I wasn't. I don't
0: think they they... count in the canon. No, they don't. Because, yeah,
1: because then like, you know, all the Cinderella sequels, they're not in there because they're direct-to-video. They're nuts.
0: They're completely nuts. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, no. So just um, like theatrical release ones. So I've looked at this ranking and I'm quite disappointed in myself. I'd like to blame Lockdown for this. Um, The Emperor's New Groove out of 57, it ranks at number 23. So almost bang in the Mm. middle. I don't know why... Mm. Like, I really like it. Like, I, you know, I, I, I revisited it, um, I suppose, last year to write this. And then I watched it again, you know, to prepare for this podcast. Um, it should be higher. But then I don't know if that just means that I like all of the other films. Like, I like a because lot of think, Disney films.
2: Put it in context for us. What do you have? Okay. One higher, one lower. So
1: at number 24, we have Zootopia, which I like a mm-hmm. lot, which I think is very mm-hmm. good. Um, oh yeah and the f- <laughs> and the first line hey, of that blurb is alternate title we live in a society which I still stand mm. by um, yes yeah, so it goes 24 Zootopia 23 Emperor's New Groove 22 Winnie the Pooh I love so, yeah, I do yeah. I love Winnie the Pooh and then it goes up into Peter Pan Lilo and Stitch mm. Lady and the Tramp Robin Hood there's a lot, there's a lot of bangers. I I, I yeah. think
2: midtable is is very respectable for this. Um, it spans and I really a lot of think, years. This ranking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, yeah, over the course of eighty years, yeah. they've had a lot of films. But it, I no, do find sit. it in his corner and be like, it's better than Fantasia. <laughs> I'm sure there. I'm not going to say that. I don't believe that. Fantasia's higher. He-
1: Fantasia is higher.
2: Lilo and Stitch being a couple of places higher is interesting because this is very much the era where at least in terms of the box office and in terms of the cultural discourse, everything had shifted to Pixar. So Emperor's New Groove comes out between Toy Story 2 and Monsters, Inc., I think. And in some ways in its tone and vibe is anticipating the the spoofy vibe of something like that. I was going to say very Shrek, yeah. So you can really tell that there is this sort of passing of the torch to a new era of animation that's happening. But then Lilo and Stitch is another one which didn't wasn't big business at the box office, but there's a whole generation that watched that on telly or video. And you go to a Disney park now and that is like the main merchandise. <laughs> it's Lilo and Stitch. It's crazy. Um, I find that stuff really fascinating, the micro-generations between Disney. Um, but listeners, I'd like to know what you make of The Emperor's New Groove. It's, uh, it is is a really fun one to go and revisit, at least for that vibe, Cambly, that you mentioned, the Looney Tunes-esque vibe, plus some great voice performances. Also probably the most 90s cameo you can have Tom Jones just turning up to sing the theme song oh my
0: god yes (laughs) oh yeah
2: it's all coming together (laughs) listeners let us know what you think at relies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Campbell Aiella, thank you so much for joining me this week and chatting through those films. It was great fun. Next week we have the new Jacques Audiard film, Paris 13th District. We also have Ty West's X. and since that is looking back as an era of exploitation horror cinema, we're going to go back to I Spit on Your Grave for Film Club. Listeners, subscribe wherever you pod and if you're a podcast player of choice, lets you leave reviews, we'd love it if you left one for us. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. It's hosted by me, Michael Leader, produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McSheel, and edited by Steph Watts and James Payne.